For as long as there has been seafaring commerce, there has been piracy. Ancient Egyptians were some of the first merchants to transport goods via boats, sailing long barges with goods up and down the Nile River to the Mediterranean. Almost immediately, these shipments became the target for bandits. The first pirates were a mysterious roving tribe called the Sea Peoples. They attacked boats on the Nile and all along the Egyptian coast. They not only stole cargo, but burned villages and killed innocent merchants. The Sea Peoples established some of the common standards of piracy that lasted for thousands of years. Their multi-ethnic makeup made them loyal not to a nation, but to themselves. Their lifestyle revealed one of the core attractions of piracy, to cast aside the laws of society and live on their own terms. And since they had no bureaucracy or legal framework, leadership was a matter of group decisions, an early form of democracy. Thousands of years later, European colonization of the Western Hemisphere established a new age of trade, and with it, a new age of piracy. Following their forefathers, these new 17th century pirates created democratic communities aboard their ships, including how they chose their captains. Of course, just because a captain was elected didn't mean the man or woman didn't let the power go to their head. Even in a pirate republic forged on equal say and equal shares, the shadow of tyranny crept through. And some of history's most famous pirate captains did all they could to hold on to their power. Even if it meant running their crews like a dictatorship. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This season, we'll be looking at the unique democracies turned dictatorships that flourished during the golden age of piracy. We'll chronicle some of history's most famous pirates, like Henry Every, Blackbeard, Jean Lafitte, Mary Reed, Anne Bonny, and Ching Shi. Today, we'll meet the first true pirate king, Henry Every. While he wasn't the first pirate to terrorize merchant fleets, Every certainly became one of the most successful, and his adventures inspired others to follow his path. This week, we'll explore Every's early years in the British Navy and the ruthless mutiny that made him a captain. We'll also dive into how a seemingly democratic society gave rise to tyrannical captains. Next week, we'll explore the legendary attack that made Every the target of the first global manhunt in history. We'll also discuss the abrupt end to his career, his fateful disappearance, and his enduring legacy for pirates everywhere. We'll have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. A millennium after the Sea Peoples vanished into history, the Barbary pirates of the Mediterranean picked up where they left off. These predominantly Muslim pirates were called Corsairs. They raided coastal encampments and stole shipments all along the North African coast during the 16th and 17th centuries. The Barbary Corsairs expanded their territory like no pirates had ever done. Many of them sailed past Gibraltar and out into the Atlantic. They headed north, terrorizing the western shores of Europe and prowling the English Channel. In addition to theft and violence, the Barbary pirates kidnapped British citizens and demanded ransoms for their return. Many of these victims ended up in North Africa and were sold into slavery there. By the mid-1600s, the British Parliament estimated that about 5,000 of its citizens were held by the pirates in North Africa. Rumor had it that in any given year, over 60 Barbary pirates were said to be terrorizing the English Channel. This meant that for most of the 17th century, the odds of a British coastal resident being kidnapped by pirates were much higher than a modern-day terrorist attack. This was the dangerous era that Henry Every was born into on August 20th, 1659. He came from a small village near Plymouth in Devonshire, along the southwestern coast of England, which meant he grew up in pirate territory. No doubt, as a child, he heard horrible stories about the Barbary Corsairs' violence and thievery, and likely lived in fear of their terrible threat. Unfortunately, Every's early years are shrouded in mystery. Even his birth date and legal name are up for debate. Records were inconsistent and often disregarded in rural 17th century England. Like many infamous pirates, his name was spelled in various ways and he had several aliases throughout the years, something that would help him decades later when the whole of England was hunting him. What we do know for certain is that Henry Every started out as most English pirates did, as a member of the Royal Navy. In the 1600s, England's fleets were competing with Spain and France for world supremacy. British shipyards turned out huge sailing vessels at an astonishing rate, 
and thus the Navy had a hard time finding enough men to sail them. So to find young, able-bodied men, they turned to press gangs. Press gangs were hired thugs who trolled the seediest districts of port towns like Bristol and Liverpool. It was their job to find viable candidates for impressment or forced recruitment. Many of these forced recruits were criminals or under the influence of drugs and alcohol. They would offer them a choice, prison or the Navy. The choice was easy, especially considering that many of the men were hungry, homeless, or unskilled laborers. Joining the Navy gave them food, wages, and a valuable skill in knowing how to sail. While the exact nature of Henry Every's recruitment is muddled, records show that he signed up for service sometime in the early 1670s. And once aboard, he quickly learned that life as a sailor was difficult, uncomfortable, and dangerous. A 17th century royal warship was essentially a floating village no bigger than a modern tennis court. A crew of over a hundred men had to carry all of their food and water with them, as well as cannons, gunpowder, and all of the material necessary to repair the ship at sea. With minimal space, the men had to sleep shoulder to shoulder in rows of hammocks below deck. There were no windows, and very little fresh air reached the bowels of the ship. Adding to the discomfort were the small rations. Poor sanitation and hygiene led to huge numbers of illnesses among sailors. In fact, disease and infections were extremely common to Royal Navy sailors. And lording over them was the captain, a man who ruled with an iron fist. The Royal Navy demanded strict and immediate obedience, with severe consequences for insubordination. These captains were infamously cruel, doling out horrific punishments on a whim. Whippings and forced starvation were common for even the slightest of infractions. Some sailors even died under the lash of their own captains. Navy sailors were often unhappy and dreamt of freedom. But despite all the hardships, every served for years. It's possible the steady paycheck kept him tied to his service. It's also possible he was motivated by revenge. After all, Every had grown up under the terrifying shadow of piracy. The Royal Navy offered him an opportunity to strike some terror back into the hearts of the pirates along the Barbary coast. But another reason may have been that Every simply sought adventure and a chance at making his own fortune. The few letters and anecdotes that survive describe a young sailor who knew he would find his destiny at sea. Of course, Every didn't realize just how far he'd have to go to find it, or how long it would take to get there. Every first served as a member of the crew of the HMS Resolution, a 70-gun warship dispatched to the North African coast. Over the decade, he rose through the enlisted ranks, earning a reputation as a steadfast, charismatic shipmate, even if he didn't look like it. Every was described as a generally unremarkable man of medium height and weight, with thinning hair and paunchy skin. He looked like any other sailor, which made it easy for him to get lost among the ranks. Like many infamous pirate captains, there are few details about the rest of Every's Royal Navy career. We know he fought in sea battles aboard at least two vessels, which earned him respect. 
By the early 1690s, he was an officer with an impressive resume and formidable sailing skills. Unfortunately, after nearly 20 years in the Navy, Every was fed up working for the Crown. He may have been a junior officer, but he was subject to the same cramped quarters and abysmal treatment as the other sailors. By 1693, 34-year-old Every wanted more. He wanted the freedom to control his destiny, to make his fortunes. And he knew that the only hope for freedom was to become a captain of his own. But the Royal Navy didn't simply hand over a ship to any officer that wanted one. So Every decided it was time for a career change. A change that meant turning to the very thing he spent the last 20 years battling, piracy. Coming up, Henry Every is forced into a fateful decision. Hi, it's Vanessa from Parcast Network, and I'm thrilled to tell you that this month marks a huge milestone for us. It's the four-year anniversary of a podcast I host called Serial Killers. If you haven't had a chance to dive into the stories and psychology behind the most nightmarish murderers of all time, why wait? There's no better time than right now to start listening. Each week, we enter the minds, the methods, and the madness of the world's most sadistic serial killers. From the son of Sam, David Berkowitz, and the co-ed killer, Edmund Kemper, to Eileen Warnos, Ed Gein, and coming soon, the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez. And this February, look out for our four-part special on couples who kill, following the worst love has to offer. Their names may sound ordinary, but their atrocities are anything but. You do not want to miss it. With hundreds of episodes available to binge and new ones released weekly, get to know the killers, crimes, and cases that forever changed the face of history. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. New episodes air every Monday and Thursday, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. By 1693, 34-year-old Henry Every was an experienced sailor and well-regarded naval officer. However, after two decades of loyal service, Every was disenchanted. Life in the Royal Navy was a difficult one of hard labor, small rations, and terrible discipline at the hands of tyrant captains. Every had to set out to find a life of adventure and take a bit of revenge against England's enemies. He even harbored hopes of becoming a wealthy captain. Instead, he was little more than middle management to his Navy bosses. Henry Every yearned for more. And in August of 1693, an opportunity presented itself to become a privateer. 
During the 1500s and 1600s, the prevailing form of piracy was called privateering. The nations that controlled the world's oceans, namely England, France, and Spain, were constantly bickering over trade and territory. In any given decade, two of these nations were engaged in a war. These continental wars were often fought in distant colonies or at sea. Each country's navy could hardly protect all the vast territories they claimed, so they often commissioned privately owned ships and crews to aid in the fight. These private sailors were called privateers. The only difference between privateers and pirates was a piece of paper called a letter of mark. Essentially, it was a permission slip from a government to engage in piracy, but only against declared enemies of that government. Privateers were much like private security contractors in the modern military. They were well-supplied and well-paid, and their ranks were usually filled with military veterans. Many of their ships were also former Navy vessels, decommissioned and purchased by wealthy merchants looking to make some money from stolen goods. Historian Douglas Burgess described the formation of privateering crews as legitimate trade, aggressive mercantilism, and outright piracy commingled. Of course, there was a hypocrisy to English privateering. Crimes were acceptable by privateers, but not pirates, even if they committed the same violent acts. Take, for example, Every's childhood enemies, the Barbary Pirates. After their heinous attacks along the English Channel, Parliament labeled these pirates as international outlaws. They even created one of the earliest international maritime laws in response to the piracy, labeling them as hostis humani generis, which was Latin for enemies of all mankind. This same term survives even today. After the attacks of 9-11, the U.S. government used the concept of hostis humani generis to justify the extreme measures used against suspected terrorists at Guantanamo Bay and Abu Ghraib prison. Essentially, the English government considered the Barbary pirates to be the world's first terrorists and sent their military to hunt them down accordingly. However, when English privateers attacked Spanish or French settlements and ships, they became popular heroes. Newspapers that wrote long, terrible headlines about the Barbary pirates also published glowing stories about privateers. Never mind the fact that they were both violently plundering. The difference between the two types of sailors was often blurry. In his definitive book on pirate history, Captain Charles Johnson even said that privateers in a time of war are a nursery for pirates against peace. Some privateers didn't want to stop hunting and pillaging ships once the war they were hired for was over. So they simply kept doing it and became pirates. For Henry Every, this meant he saw competing examples of piracy throughout his life. As a child, he saw the Barbary pirates called enemies of all mankind. But during his career as a young naval officer, he also heard tales of English privateers as national heroes. While Every toiled in the Royal Navy, England's most famous privateer was Captain Henry Morgan. Morgan was essentially ruling the English capital in Port Royal, Jamaica, while terrorizing Spanish ships in the Caribbean. 
As a privateer, Morgan became one of the wealthiest Englishmen in the West Indies. He was living the very life Every had sought so many years before when he enlisted in the Navy. So in the summer of 1693, when fate gave Every an opportunity to follow in Morgan's footsteps, he seized his chance. Through his military connections, Every learned of a new privateer crew that was hiring experienced sailors in August of 1693. It was called the Spanish Expedition Shipping, and it promised to make Every a rich man. The chief funder of the expedition, James Hublon, was a wealthy merchant and member of parliament. With legal permission from Spain, the crew would recover and trade treasure in the Caribbean. Anything they took, they could keep. Minus the Spanish crowns cut, of course. The potential profit was enormous. So much so that Hublon's company went ahead and built four brand new ships for the mission. The best was a magnificent vessel called the Charles II. The Charles II carried 46 guns and was exceptionally fast. Making the deal even more enticing, Hublon offered signing bonuses and guaranteed salaries to the sailors. Rarely did such an offer come, and Every knew he would be foolish to pass it up. He resigned from his Navy post and applied for Hublon's expedition. Every's impressive naval career and charisma made him an obvious choice. He was quickly chosen as the Charles II's first mate, serving under Captain Charles Gibson. Captain Gibson was a sailor with immense experience, but a tendency to drink a lot. Every had little respect for him, but the paramount law of a ship had been beaten into him by the Royal Navy. The captain's authority was beyond question, so Every sucked up his pride and followed Gibson's orders. With his jovial nature, Every became a favorite among the crew of the Charles II, forging relationships on the journey from London to Spain. They just had to collect the letters of Mark from the Spanish government and they'd be on their way to the Caribbean. Unfortunately, the documents weren't ready yet. So the crew could do little more than wait for the paperwork, a distinctly boring start to their supposedly thrilling expedition. After several weeks of waiting, Every grew restless. The bureaucracy reminded Every of his days in the Navy, a force stopping him from obtaining his destiny. He had signed on for action, adventure, and a hefty bit of loot. Instead, he found himself stuck in a Spanish port. To make matters worse, nobody was getting paid. Having heard what was happening back in London, several wives of the crew members formally complained to James Hublon and petitioned for their husband's wages to be paid. Hublon responded by telling them that the expedition was now the property of the King of Spain. Hublon's cold response reached the men aboard the Charles II, and soon rumors began to spread that the crew would never make it to the Caribbean and would instead be sold into slavery to the Spanish. Every was furious. He had spent 20 years of his life under the iron fist of Royal Navy captains. This charter was supposed to be his chance to sail for his own benefit to finally experience the freedom the open water had promised. 
Now, he found himself under the rule of another group of tyrants, ones who spoke a different language. Every knew he couldn't waste the rest of his life under someone else's authority. Not again. So, he quietly started making moves to take control. In late April and early May 1694, after about four months of purgatory in Spain, Henry Every started making nightly visits to the portside taverns. He knew that most of his mates went ashore to drown their sorrows in rum and wine. Every also knew that the crews from all four of the expedition's ships were terrified they might never see England again, that they might die fighting for the Spanish crown. So he offered them an alternative. The plan was simple. Every and his motley crew were going to take control of the Charles II and escape. Of course, there was a name for this kind of action. Mutiny. Coming up, Henry Every finally meets his destiny as a pirate captain. Now, back to the story. By May of 1694, 35-year-old Henry Every had spent over two decades at sea. He'd served loyally and earned the respect of his subordinates and commanders alike, including his fellow privateers on the Hublon expedition. But now, Every and the other sailors found themselves betrayed by their captain and benefactors. Much like boys falling into the hands of a press gang, the sailors had essentially been forced into service in Spain. Refusing to suffer again in the service of another monarch, Every had no choice but to take matters into his own hands, even if that meant leading a mutiny. Every's rebellion had one significant obstacle to overcome. Most of the men he recruited were spread out across the four ships in the expedition, and the ships were anchored some distance apart in the harbor. He needed to bring his men together on the Charles II without alerting any of the captains or other sailors who were loyal to the expedition. To start the mutiny covertly, Every came up with a signal phrase about a drunken sailor. If the men heard it, they were supposed to move to the Charles II and be ready to steal the ship. After a few days of organizing, Every and his fellow mutineers decided that the time to act was now or never. A little after 9 p.m. on May 7, 1694, Every sent a small dinghy boat with mutineers from the Charles II out to one of the expedition's other ships, the James. The plan was simple. Say the code phrase, load the dinghy with fellow mutineers, and row back across the bay to the Charles II. Unfortunately, first mate Thomas Druitt guarding the deck of the James wasn't part of the mutiny. So when Every's men arrived and used the phrase, it only made the guarding sailors suspicious. Every's men realized the jig was up. Doing away with the deception, they called out to their compatriots that it was time to go. The guard ran to tell the captain, but not before two dozen sailors jumped into the dinghy and rowed away. Just as the dinghy reached the Charles II, the captain of the James ordered his cannons to prepare to fire. 
With the mutineers all on board the Charles II, Every began taking command. He ordered his men to cut the anchor and get ready to sail away. At the same time, they locked Captain Gibson in his cabin and overpowered any sailor who fought back. The mutiny had begun. As the Charles II began to move, the James opened fire. The shots alerted the Spanish soldiers guarding the bay entrance, and before long, they were prepared to fire at Every as well. Every shouted for his men to raise full sail. They needed to make it to the open sea before it was too late. The Charles II slowly gained speed as the sails caught the night breeze. When the giant ship finally passed the mouth of the bay, Every looked back at the other ships that were following in their wake. The other ships were far too slow to catch the Charles II, and the Spanish cannons were now out of range. The mutiny had succeeded, and Henry Every was now captain of one of the fastest ships in the Atlantic Ocean. Of course, Every wasn't the only captain on board. Technically, Charles Gibson, who had fallen ill, still had the title, even though he and his loyal followers were locked away. Every knew that how he decided to handle his former captain and crewmates was incredibly important. The mutineers had successfully stolen the ship under Every's command, but they hadn't agreed to let him stay in command. How Every treated their prisoners would be a sign of how he might treat them. As he went down to speak to Gibson, Every knew the whole crew was watching. Every's exact words have been lost to time, but both Captain Gibson and his second mate, a man named Joseph Gravet, were reportedly treated with respect by the new captain. He told them that he had no intention of returning to the expedition, they could either join the crew, or he would release them into a lifeboat to return to Spain. Both men chose to go. They weren't willing to turn pirate and risk England and Spain's wrath. Along with Gibson and Gravet, another 15 men left the ship in a well-stocked lifeboat. The only man Every forced to stay aboard the Charles II was the ship's doctor. He was deemed too valuable to leave. After the lifeboat disappeared over the horizon, Every had around 80 or 85 men left under his command. Every knew he needed to immediately establish himself as a firm but fair leader if he was to retain control. His respectful treatment of the former captain was a sign of his M.O. as a commander. He disguised cunning manipulation as benevolence. He needed to have the crew's support, while also making sure his plan was always followed. In essence, Every had to be a dictator leading a democracy. This balance of total power and mutual respect was not unusual for pirate captains. Unlike the Navy, they were leading a crew composed entirely of volunteers. And unlike merchant ships, none of the crew, including the captain, would get paid if they didn't work together. A pirate captain couldn't afford to be a tyrant, but they couldn't afford to be weak either. Every's charisma and long record made the men admire him enough to follow him into a mutiny. But following him into piracy was a different prospect. 
Every didn't want to end up on his own lifeboat in the middle of the Atlantic, no matter how respectfully the men put him there. He needed to firm up his control. So the next evening, he called a meeting of the crew. It was time to lay down the law. Every meant to do this quite literally. It was common for pirate crews to have a set of rules that govern their ships. Just because they were escaping the laws of society didn't mean they were without a code entirely. These piratical constitutions were known as the Articles of Agreement. The specific articles that Every and his crew signed have been lost to history, but most pirate articles were surprisingly democratic. In fact, in surviving examples that exist, the first and most important article was about equality. This was likely true under Every as well. He knew that while he had seized command for the mutiny, he couldn't hold on to power with his charisma and cunning alone. So he put it to a vote. Every member of the crew had an equal say in electing their captain and quartermaster, who was essentially a ship's office manager. This democratic system also meant that a captain's position could be challenged. As Charles Johnson wrote in A General History of the Pirates, the supreme power rested with the community. Every knew that to avoid any challenges to his command, he had to keep his crew happy. And nothing made sailors happier than getting paid. The division of loot was also clearly laid out in the Articles of Agreement. Every came from the Navy, where a captain and officers might earn 10 times as much as the crew. On privateering expeditions like Hublon's, the ratio was more like 5 to 1. On Every's ship, he made sure it was no more than 2 to 1. At most, Every took a double share of the loot and an equal share of the food and water supplies. After all, they were all literally in the same boat. Why should he get to eat more? But despite all of this, Every did have one caveat when it came to equality. He told the men that when they were in combat, his authority would be absolute. He had two decades of battle experience, and he had proven his strategic skills with the mutiny. During a fight, he required the crew to move as one under his command alone. Any dissension could spell disaster or death for all of them. The men agreed, and once the articles were written, they quickly chose to keep Every as their captain. In honor of their new accord, Every renamed the ship. It was now called the Fancy. 35-year-old Henry Every was now officially a captain, leading a loyal crew aboard one of the newest, fastest ships in the world. He had finally taken control of his own destiny, and he was ready to lead the life of adventure and riches he'd always sought. For the next year or so, that was exactly what he did. Every set sail from Madagascar, just off the eastern shore of Africa. It was a pirate haven, with plenty of secluded coast where they could hide. And best of all, the island was within spitting distance of the trade routes from India. Britain's East India Trading Company was growing exponentially, and there were plenty of rich, heavily laden merchant ships to plunder. 
The voyage to Madagascar took several months, and along the way, Every's crew terrorized coastal villages and pillaged merchant ships. During these raids, many of the captured sailors were willing to turn pirate, and those who weren't so willing but had valuable skills could easily be persuaded with a knife. By the summer of 1695, Every was commanding a crew of over 150 men. They had a safe haven in Madagascar, running down merchant ships and pilfering their cargoes. It was a good life, the one Every had wanted for so long. Of course, Every wasn't alone in his aspirations, and he wasn't the only former privateer enticed by the pirate playground of the Indian Ocean. As the year wore on, Every found himself competing with other pirate captains. In fact, one summer night, the Fancy anchored in the same harbor with five other pirate ships, all of which had come from America. Normally, it might have been troubling for a captain to be side by side with his competition. But as Every stood on the deck gazing at the other pirate ships, he realized he had stumbled into an opportunity. What if he could command not just one ship, but a whole fleet? Then he would be unstoppable. He contacted the other five pirate captains and asked for a parlay, a private meeting on neutral ground. Then he told them what he had in mind, an alliance. Due to the increase in pirate activity, merchants had started hiring well-armed escorts to sail along with their vessels. One pirate ship alone was no match for these convoys. But Every suggested that if they cooperated, no one would be able to stop them. After consulting with their crews, the other captains all agreed to band together. And of course, they chose Henry Every to be their commander. Captain Henry Every was now the leader of a pirate armada. He had enough firepower to pursue the biggest prize any of them had ever taken. He was living the adventure he dreamed of as a boy in England. And soon, the entire British Empire would be hunting him for it. Thanks for listening to Dictators. We'll be back next week with the thrilling conclusion to the hunt for Henry Every. Among the many sources we used, we found The Enemy of All Mankind by Stephen Johnson and The Republic of Pirates by Colin Woodard extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Dictators was written by Andrew Messer, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Chelsea Wood. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Ha! <laughs> 
Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa again. Before you go, don't forget to check out the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. Each week, join me and my co-host Greg for a deep dive into the minds and madness of history's most notorious murderers. You can binge hundreds of episodes, four years worth, and catch new episodes every Monday and Thursday. Listen to Serial Killers free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.